welcome to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline. I'm your host, Monica Hadley. And today, our guest is Ken Javorowski, who is an editor at the New York Times. He graduated from Shippensburg University and the University of Pennsylvania. He grew up in Philadelphia, which is no surprise considering uh, the setting of this book, or at least where one of the characters is from, where he was an amateur boxer and has had plays produced in New York and Europe. He lives in New Jersey with his family. Small Town Sins is his first novel. Welcome to Writer's Voices, Ken. Monica, thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. (laughs) So what kind of editor are you at the New York Times? What do you edit? For years, I was exclusively just a culture editor, film reviews, music reviews, theater reviews. But when the Times... uh, underwent a restructuring a couple of years ago, I almost became a bit of a um, freelance. So I do, even even though I'm a a full-time employee (laughs) for the time, I jump around from desk to desk. Primarily, I still do culture, but a little bit of real estate, a little bit occasionally of uh, breaking political news. Most of what I do, though, is features, and most of what I do is culture-related. Well, how did you get into that? I got into that because... To, to make a funny statement is because I liked meeting women. I was growing up. I went to college and someone had asked me, they knew I boxed and they asked me to uh, write a small column for the school newspaper. I wrote it on boxing. I was walking down the hall of college and I saw somebody, a girl reading <laughs> my my article. And I thought it was a great conversation starter. I said, Hey, I wrote that. And it's that's I've been writing ever since. I've been uh, working for newspapers ever since. Okay, you know what would make that a better story? What's that? If you ended up marrying that girl, I say would. <laughs> it would be a terrific story. No, I remember her face, but I don't even remember her name. We had a nice talk about the article, and that was it. So when you were growing up, it it didn't occur to you that you were going to be a writer or a journalist. That wasn't where you were headed. No, I, I did a lot of scribbling, you know, I like like all kids, I kept a journal and, and wrote a little bit, but someone asked me to write an article. And then after that one ran, they asked me to write another one. I actually have a, in college, I have a finance degree and um, I worked for the school. I had a finance degree and I worked for the school newspaper. When I got out of college, uh, Bloomberg News was hiring. And if you know Bloomberg News, they're primarily a, a, a financial news site. So my finance degree and my journalism experience melded pretty well together and that's how I started. Okay, but it's kind of a leap from finance to culture writing. Yes, it is. <laughs> um, I also discovered I took a couple of classes in college on Shakespeare and theater, and I started to write for the theater. That's why they they put me on the culture desk. I've had several plays done. I think you, you announced a couple, and I've actually one right one running right now in Guadalajara, Mexico, and the other in Avignon, France. So what a what a <laughs> yeah what a what a pairing. So I, I started to write a little bit. I started to write a little bit um, uh, for the theater. Then when I went to graduate school, I have a master of liberal arts. I, I uh, with a, a master of liberal arts with a concentration in American literature. Mm-hmm. To write my thesis, I tried all I could to avoid a, a writing a paper. And they said, you can do a creative thesis. So I wrote a play. And uh, that's one of the reasons I started for the theater. So I wrote a play for my creative thesis, and and I kept up with that as well. You sound like a bit of a renaissance man. Boxing, (laughs) finance, theater, (laughs) and now a novelist. 
I, I hope so. Uh, the reason I took up boxing, because you had to in Philadelphia. Um, <laughs> and especially in the neighborhood I grew up in, you had to learn to protect yourself. And they all, they seem to feed all, off each other. I Look, I wrote about boxing. And as for finance, especially in uh, uh, journalism, you can't write about any topic without writing about finance. You can't write about pi- politics without writing about finance. You can't write about culture. We, uh, what do we do every week? We write about how the films did at the box office. You can't write about sports without writing about finance and, and how much uh, athletes are paid. So finance in some way leads itself to everything. At times, it's, it lead, leans itself too much into other topics. I've never thought about it that way, and I think most people don't. I'm a um, finance I'm a CFO of my company, oh. so <laughs> of which is um, a manufacturing company. So mm-hmm. this obviously is just a sideline gig here, but um, so but and people do tend to think, oh, you're a numbers person. That's completely different than what I do as a creative person. But I don't mm-hmm. find it different. I I find it overlaps quite a lot. I totally agree. I could not agree more. Everything yeah. seems to overlap. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So Small Town Sins, your first novel. Pretty gritty, I gotta say. And um, of all the things you could have written about, why this? I love. I grew up in Philadelphia. I grew up, in a, and I I grew up in Philadelphia, and I almost never ventured out of Philadelphia when I was growing up. I was a city kid. I was a street kid. Again, I boxed, and the mean I, streets, right? <laughs> I, it was, they were a bit of, of the mean streets. As a matter of fact, I've gone back uh, recently, and it's completely gentrified. So if you tell somebody <laughs> you grew up in that section, they say, oh, you must be very wealthy. It wasn't right when I was growing up. Then I went away to college in a little town in, uh, called Shippensburg, Pennsylvania. And boy, things could not have been different from the street kid uh, to go to this small town and be woken up one morning by the Amish clip-clopping by my dorm room. <laughs> it was a revelation, and I fell in love with these people. I fell in love with this town, and then, of course, I promptly forgot about them all. I went. I moved to Manhattan. Um, uh, then now I'm in New Jersey. Then my daughter became college age, and we went back to Pennsylvania to look at colleges. And I thought all those emotions came came back. I'm like, oh, this is where I've got to set the novel. I had said a couple of them that this is my first published novel, but I've written several before. And uh, and they were all city, and they were all. Um, I, I think they tend to blather. And I said to this one, "No, I'm going to focus it. I'm going to focus it right here, uh, in a, in a small town." And that's how it came about. Actually, I, I think I have my daughter to to uh, <laughs> thank for it to, for wanting to see colleges in Pennsylvania. Where did she end up going? She did not end up going to Pennsylvania. <laughs> she went to, or she goes to now, um, uh, a Sacred Heart. University in Connecticut, Fairfield, little, little nice little college in Fairfield, Connecticut. I grew up in Strasburg, by the way. Strasburg, Pennsylvania? Strasburg, Pennsylvania. Oh, Lancaster I County. See. Yeah, uh-huh. not not too far from Philly. From the age of three to thirteen. Now that would have been before your time, I think. But um, <laughs> it uh, it's and because so I know all about the Amish clip clopping by. Of course, Lancaster yep. County is the the center of Amish country. And, mm-hmm. 
it is so completely different when I go back there now because it was so rural back in, this would have been in the 60s. So it was, um, or very early 60s or very early 70s. So it was very rural. And now it's like, there's no like rural, completely empty land between Philly and Lancaster. It's completely developed. You are absolutely correct. It's become very touristy as well. There's a lot of people occasionally I'll go back uh, and you will see it. It's become very touristy. It's been, uh, it's filled with brew pubs and nice little restaurants. And, <laughs> and you're right. Uh, you know, the Amish now have to, uh, have to compete with the BMWs that, that roll down the street. Yeah. So you're absolutely right. Yeah. It's, it's quite different. So in small town sins, um, you're following three main characters and it can be kind of complicated to, to write that way. Um, so I'm, I'm wondering why you chose to have three characters rather than just one main one. And particularly because even though they are sort of interrelated, the stories aren't entirely interrelated, which is an, a little unusual. So tell me your thought process in, in doing this and, and how you pulled it off. It really did write itself. And that really happens with me. I had... Uh, I'm, I'm trying not to give away a little bit of the plot, but I'll, but I'll, I'll give a, a, a little bit away. I had re- read a story, a newspaper story, about a fireman who had stolen, had been caught stealing something from a house that he had been in. And there I am in central Pennsylvania. I said, wow, that's an interesting story. What happens if a fireman here were to go into a, an abandoned cabin, let's say, that was on fire and stole something he shouldn't have or took something he shouldn't have? And I started to write that. And that was going to be the story. It was going to be a, a, a sort of a traditional novel with one character, but all of a sudden, a couple of them, uh, a couple of other characters started to creep in. And I, someone had asked me, they, the, the chapters alternate between the characters. Did I write one character, then write the, and and I did. I alternated, and it just sort of went to uh, a multi-dimensional plot. It just it just sort of happened. It really is one of the few things I've ever written that sort of just took over on its own. And and I hate that phrase. It sounds like a cliche, but it really is true. It wrote itself. So you did you did you write the chapters in the order that they're in the book? Yes, I did. I wrote wow. them just as they are. I didn't. No, I would I would go back and read over the previous right, chapters right, that, yeah. I, that I wrote. But um, but I wrote it just as it is, just as you see it, just as you read it. That's essentially how I wrote it. Yeah. Now, is one of the characters more you than than others? Although I don't know that you'd want to identify too much with any of them. They are all pretty flawed. <laughs> right. I I should look up this. I heard this one quote probably 20 years ago, and I use it quite often. And I don't even know who said it. I don't even know if I heard it correctly, but I love it. And this quote is this. We are all the same person expressed differently. And I love that because, you know, we all have the same basic emotions. We all have fear. We all have jealousy. We all have love. We all have passions, but um, we, some of us have them in different amounts. And um, so you, you ask if any one of them is me. Um, I think all of them are in some way and all of them, all of them are to some degree. Um, And that's the same thing with, even though this is centered on a small town um, and some people have asked me how different is the small town from the city? There are of course differences, but look, I've, I've worked for the New York times for 19 years now and I've interviewed a lot of CEOs and I've interviewed a lot of politicians. I'm primarily an editor, but I do do some reporting and 
it really is true. We're all the same at our core in some way. We all have these same emotions. We all have our loves. We all have our hates. And um, same with the characters. I think I'm a little bit of them and, and I'm a little bit not them either. We seem to currently in our political situation today in this country want to have this huge divide between city and rural. And I don't, I don't think it is as there is, it, it's there to some degree. Certainly um, most, most cities, even in like I'm in Texas right now, in most cities in Texas, uh, the vote blue, even though the uh, state as a whole goes red because mm-hmm. actually there's more voters in this, in the rural and small town areas, or at least right. there may not be more people, but they're, they're more likely to vote. Um, and so they tend to have more control than disproportionate amounts of control. But I also, you know, I, I live part-time in Austin, Texas, part-time in Fairfield, Iowa, which is about as small town as you can get. Mm-hmm. And, um, people, you're right. People are the same everywhere. And mm-hmm. I wish there were some way to kind of cross that divide a little bit. I agree. And I, Tell you, I love Manhattan. I lived in Manhattan for eight years. I go to, well, starting in September, I'm going to be going back to the office full time. And I love the city. But sometimes it seems like everything I read is about the city, mm-hmm. is about Manhattan, is about that, you know, these people. I, re- I read these stories about people going to, you know, a, a we went to this restaurant last night and this one, I'm like, how do they pay for it all? It's so expensive to live there. Um, and I, <laughs> and I think when you live in Manhattan, you, you, you see, come to see it as the center of the universe. And it is not um, the center of universe is wherever you live, whether it be in Locksburg, uh, Pennsylvania, the fictional town where this novel is set um, in, in Texas in Idaho and anywhere. And I think um small towns sort of get shortchanged. There's a lot of good writing out there about small towns. There's a lot of good writing out there about rural areas, but sometimes it tends to get overlooked by, and I hate to use this word, but I will, by the establishment, by um, some of the major um, book sites and and book reviews. They tend sometimes to overlook it, and I I believe that's very unfair. Well, I will say that... um despite your fondness for small towns, uh, small town sins isn't going to make anyone want to move to a small town. Uh, <laughs> I, yeah. So it's, it's a little bit of a grim picture. These, these, uh, you have these three characters, Nathan, Andy, and Callie. And, um, even though there is certainly hopefulness in the story and and the, and it ends on a very hopeful note the in one sense <laughs> or, or in some sense it sends it ends on a hopeful note um <laughs> it's also very very sad in a way and it's um was it hard to to write about so many people with so many problems i think at its core it is a hopeful novel I, I think at it at its core, there is some type of redemption. But I didn't want to shy away from complicated problems that some people have, and sometimes a dark side. Um, I, I'm going to run the risk here of making too big and bold a statement, but 
bear with me if you will. I think that's one of the problems with social media that we see. Look, I have, I have two um, teenage children and you look at social media and if you look at everyone's story, they seem to be having the best life. They seem, <laughs> they, they put forward, people mostly put forward and project a life that has no problems. And I think when you are a teenager and you have your own problem, and as a teenager, we know we're surrounded by problems, but you see someone else's life that appears to be perfect, you feel wanting. I know there's, again, I know it's a big statement. To bring that forward to the novel, too, I didn't want to shy away from tough problems and and to say that, look, sometimes life is not easy and sometimes difficult things happen. I think well, that's the quick version. Yeah. That's true. And also... What's there to write about if everything's gone smoothly? Correct. You have to have when, a conflict. <laughs> absolutely. Yes, you do. And when I finished the novel, I showed it to an agent who said, I love this novel, but should we have an epilogue to say everyone is going to be okay? <laughs> and uh, to, to, to listeners, I'm trying not to give away a little, uh, the endings, but but some of them may be happy, some of them maybe not, some of them we don't know. So the agent asked me, "Would you like to put an epilogue in there?" And I thought quite a bit about it, and eventually we decided not to. To bring it back again to talk of social media, or actually, if we can go back even further to the Greeks, didn't the Greeks believe that we should view the Greeks believed we should view tragedy to have a catharsis and to release those emotions in us that may not be so pleasant. Again, I think I might be making too big of a statement, but um, but sometimes life is not uh, uh, is not a bowl of cherries. I once wrote a story that was uh, quite dark years and years ago, and I showed it to um, my boy a boyfriend, and he it really freaked him out that I would write something so dark. <laughs> and, and I, but I agree, it was it's cathartic. I don't, I'm not a dark person. I have actually a very happy life, but but. That's you why know, we love was, Stephen. Yeah, that's, exactly. That's why we love Stephen <laughs> King. That's why the guy sells millions and millions of novels because people like to be scared. That's why we have thrill rides. That's why we have uh, um, horror films because we need we have those emotions. Us, we're all scared on some level. I, I really think we are um, because life uh, uh, at the end is a tragedy for all of us, and. Um, and I think sometimes we have to experience those emotions. I, again, at its core, I think Small Town Sins is a hopeful novel, but it doesn't shy away from uh, sometimes showing a side that uh, we might not like to think about. You're listening to Writer's Voices, and our guest today is Ken Jabarowski, and he is the author of Small Town Sins. And Ken, why don't you... Introduce us to the three characters, the main characters in this. Tell us a little bit about them. Um, let me back up for a second. I'll lead into it with uh, off of what you just said. You had said you had shown a story to a boyfriend who, uh, <laughs> who had doubts about you after that. The, the opposite happened to me. After college, someone had asked me to read their book of collected short stories. And um, the, there was a through line through all the stories. It was a group of women who were meeting after 20 years. And one of them was a brilliant surgeon. 
She was absolutely brilliant in the operating room. And the other one was a, a, a high powered lawyer who had never lost a case. And the other one was a Wall Street maven who, who um, uh, made billions on Wall Street. And all of them were successes. My friend asked me, do you like the book? And I said, yes, I do. But it's, did you ever think of, I said to her, did you ever think of writing someone who hasn't achieved their dream? You know, something. And she said to me, I was surprised. She said, <laughs> no, no one wants to hear that. <laughs> and, and I, and I totally disagree. Not everyone is a brilliant surgeon. Not everyone is a, a super sleuth PI if you're into mystery. And, um, and now to bring it forward to the three characters, none of these three are, yeah, again, they're, for lack of a better word, ordinary people, people that you might know. The first one is Nathan. He is a um, working in a metal uh, fabrication plant, and he's also a uh, volunteer fireman. The second is Callie, who was a nurse who works for a small town hospital of, of 10 beds. And not only does she work as a, a nurse, sometimes the phone rings in the hospital and the receptionist is out. So she has to answer the phone, too. So it's almost uh, she's like almost a, a jack of all trades. And the third person is uh, from defining people by their profession is just a, um, a, a gas station attendant who is a former drug addict who has moved from Philadelphia to sort of uh, see if he can find a better life in this small town of Locksburg, Pennsylvania. So those are the three characters, Nathan, the volunteer fireman, Callie, the nurse, and Andy, the uh, recovering addict who works in a gas station. And they each have kind of a burden that they're carrying with them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, as, as we all do, I like to think. <laughs> um, I, don't, I don't think fiction has to mirror real life. I don't think it has to be... Uh, um, Look, I love fantasy and I love sci-fi. It doesn't have to hew incredibly close to what real life is or what we'll experience. But I think it is worth emulating real life when we talk about people who, you know, one day you're on the top of the world and next day you're really not. This morning was really going great for me personally until I spilled that cup of coffee <laughs> in my lap. And, and, and I dropped to, your computer. And, <laughs> and I, dro I dropped the computer twice. I can't believe it, too. So I don't. Th I think it's important, at least for me as a writer, it doesn't have to be for everybody, but I think it's important to, to look at life sometimes as a whole and, and not just as a black and white. There are so many shades of gray. As, as I say, I'm not saying anything com completely profound. I think we all know this. So Nathan is um, and his wife, whom he loves very much, are struggling with infertility for many, many years. So that's sort of his. Plus, he has a secret from the past that mm -hmm. he's carrying with him. Um, the and and Callie is she's very lonely. So I'd say loneliness is is her main um, burden. Correct. Yes. Yeah. And um, and of course Andy not only has this uh, drug addiction, which he has struggled to overcome somewhat successfully, but he also has um, a, a family and a daughter whom he loves very much, but who has uh, Down syndrome. So, yeah. and, and has been the motivating, that is the motivating factor for his recovery and for staying sober is caring mm -hmm. for this daughter, which is really, really appealing and sweet. Um, I mean, it, it makes him, it makes you really root for him. And 
again, I don't think I'm saying anything too profound here or anything we don't all know, but, but bad people can do good things and good people do bad things. We know this to be true. It happens in all our lives. If I was to describe Andy in, in um, one way, hey, this is a guy who used to do heroin on the streets of Philly and he, Philly and he stole pocketbooks, you and I would say, what a horrible person. And we would look at him and we would deem him to be horrible. Look at it from the other side. He has a young disabled child who he cares for and takes care of and, uh, and a wife who has helped him quit drugs. And they are struggling to form this life in a small town. You would say, what a great person. He's both of those things. He's sometimes not a good person. He's sometimes a good person. Um, I'm fascinated by, by these things. Again, I don't think they're too profound to say but some people do, you know, we talk about our political, so you would mention the political situation. We tend to deem people, this party is good, this party is bad. I have people in my family who are on all different ends of the political uh, spectrum, and I, they annoy me, and <laughs> I'm angry at them, and I can't speak to them, and they drive me nuts, but I love them. I absolutely love them, and I think that's the way um, most people are, and I think that's the way these characters are, too. Now, one thing that doesn't come um, doesn't come across as, <laughs> or as very heroic or very uh, good in, in small-town sins is um, religion. <laughs> mm-hmm. So do you want to talk about – I mean – you're, you're, again, you're dealing with some of the um, issues that are in the headlines, in the news. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but tell I, me a little bit about why you, why you, in a way, religion is almost the bad, the the evil, the villain in the mm-hmm. book. Mm-hmm. I don't know if so much would be. I, I see your point. <laughs> religion has has been a, a a very big part of my life. I was raised Catholic. I was very strict Catholic. <clears throat> I had a priest in the family. I was an altar boy. Um, I, oh, here, here's a, the priest in my family. Get this. He was uh, um, a, 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 an uncle. Married my parents, christened me, married me, and christened my children. Aww. He was a priest for 60 years. And, uh, and of course, when you, when you think priests and altar boys, I could not have had a better experience. I had uh, all the priests I knew who were, who are nice people, and, and I like serving. I have, I am a non-practicing Catholic now and lean more towards uh, the agnostic. We talked earlier about um, the differences in Manhattan and small towns and, and how I do think people are essentially alike, but you can't deny, at least I don't think you can deny, feel free to disagree with me, um, the prevalence and the importance of religion in small towns and and i don't mock that in the least yes there is um some religious people in this book that come off not so good but but we'll go back to the good people who do bad things and the bad thing people who 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 do good things i didn't set out to um insult it and (laughs) to skewer (laughs) to skewer religion because again i believe it is very important and i don't believe anybody should be mocked for 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 whatever their beliefs are i actually admire it i admire people trying to find answers um to the universe for lack of a uh 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 uh, being too profound 
but it is a character in itself in the um in the yeah. book. I'm trying to yeah. I'm, tr- yeah. I'm trying to talk around <laughs> I it know, I, I know. Want, it's important <laughs> to a plot point, so I don't want to give away any of the plot. But it is a character as much as the town is a character and people face it. Yes, I also was raised Catholic, mm-hmm. and I have my nephew has become a priest. So mm-hmm. um, I certainly have, um, and I'm also non-practicing. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. so we have that in common. And um, I live in a in the small town that I live in is a little unusual in that in Fairfield, Iowa, and that's one of the radio stations where this will be broadcast is in Fairfield, Iowa, and it is the center of the transcendental meditation movement, and so. Uh, we certainly have plenty of very religious people in town mm-hmm. and also, um, you know, yeah. and, and you can be both. You can be a meditator and be religious. Be, and I, I know many who are, mm-hmm. so it's, it, but it's an interesting. Yeah. I don't think we can de- deny the importance. And I think that's um, one of the shortcomings of living in the city, at least the parts of the city that I have where, where it wasn't, a part or a strong, or it didn't seem to be a strong part of many people's lives. When I return to small towns, uh, I see that it is. And I find that interesting. And then for lack of a better word, I find it fascinating. I find it interesting. I find it admirable often. Um, sometimes I don't find it admirable. And if, um, again, here I am trying to walk <laughs> around the plot because I don't want to say anything, but um, I, I think it's up to the reader to make their own decision. You're listening to Writer's Voices, and our guest today is Ken Javorowski, author of Small Town Sins. Ken, why don't you read a little bit from the book for us? Okay. I have a, a, a section here, and as loath as I am to give away anything of the plot, this gives away <laughs> a little bit, but it's only in the first few pages, so it's not uh, it's okay. nothing you won't re- it's nothing you won't read early on. All right. Nathan, uh, the character of Nathan is a um, volunteer fireman. And he's had some problems in his marriage, and he is a little bit lonely, and he spends a lot of time by himself. And one day, I'm setting up the the scene that I'm going to read right now, and um, one day he goes fishing uh, in the hills around the town and uh, to a lake there. And as he's coming back through the state game lands, he receives a radio message, since he is a volunteer fireman, that there's been a fire reported in a cabin. And um, this is where that picks up. At least I could feel somewhat useful today. The fishing at Laurel Lake had been fruitless, and I'd found myself sitting in my john boat, staring into the water, wasting time, in no hurry to go home. Someone else launched a boat, a guy about my age with a boy of 12 or 13. The kid let out a joyful laugh when they were free of land. Though I try to avoid thinking of children, I couldn't help it this time. Boys at that age are everything mischievous, curious, and affectionate before the world teaches them not to be. I smiled and lifted my hand to wave at the two of them. Caught up in their own delight, they didn't see me. I brought my hand down from the wave, then went back to fishing alone. I went around a bend on Mishall Road. After the turn, a plume of smoke came into view. The house, a single-floor shack, sat 50 uh, yards off the road with a green Chevy parked in front. Most of the houses that remained standing in the region were abandoned or served as hunting cabins. Occasionally, the high school kids from town would ride up the party on them, and a couple years back, they set one ablaze, either intentionally or not. It burned to the ground, and this one would do the same if the pumper truck didn't arrive in the next five minutes. The curtains had caught fire, and the 
in the room farthest from the front door and smoke was rising through a hole in the roof. The, the thought that some high school kid could be there both pissed me off and spurred me on. Maybe one of those acne-faced idiots was passed out drunk in a room. Entering a burning building was forbidden under fire company rules, yet I decided it was worth the risk, especially with the fire only at the far side of the building. There was time to rush in and scan the place. At the front door, I felt the handle, then turned it and pushed inward. I entered and shut the door behind me to prevent any fire-fueling breeze from blowing in. Fire, fire, I hollered loud enough to, make, to wake any sleepers. Anyone in here? Anyone at all? A window shattered at the back of the house. Underneath the sound, I may have heard something. I stepped farther inside. As long as the door was in view, I could throw myself outside if things got too hot too fast. This place is going to come down. Get out now. Half a foot of smoke was creeping along the ceiling. If the owner of the car was in here unconscious, he'd soon be fried. Anyone, anyone. There was a door off the main room, probably to a bedroom. Felt the knob. Cool. Turned it. Inside, there was a mattress on the floor, surrounded by beer bottles and other junk. A green, industrial-strength trash bag sat on the mattress. Whatever was inside was heavy, heavy, judging by the dent it made. I stepped over it and opened the top. When I saw the first bundle of cash, I nearly laughed at the preposterousness. I pushed aside that bundle. Beneath it, dozens and dozens like it, crisp two-inch-thick stacks of twenties, fifties, hundreds. Dug my hand in and felt more and more money. My crazy first idea? The guys at the fire department were playing a joke on me. Maybe there was a hidden camera in the room somewhere. Somewhere, I shook that out of my head when I coughed on smoke. The place was about to become a death trap. There was no thought about what to do. I just did it. Lifted the bag. It weighed 50 pounds or so. so. Then I swung it over my shoulder and hurried from the bedroom. I crossed the main room of the house and went for the front door. Someone shrieked. An agonized sound. Part words, part wail. I turned to see a guy running down the hallway, his arms reaching out for me. He was on fire. So that's the end of the first chapter. <laughs> and that was Ken Javorowski reading from Small Town Sins. <clears throat> Is there a particular small town that you had, like, a map of in your head as you were writing about this? Um, three of them. Ah, <laughs> one of them was Shippensburg, the town of about 5,000 where I uh, went to college. The other one was Shamokin, PA, which is a little bit more north in Pennsylvania. And I had a lot of friends who would live there. And the third one, not too far, was Lock Haven, where I got the fictionalized town of, uh, of Locksburg. So, but I've traveled through several of these towns and they all have their own flavor. They all have their own. They're, they're not all the same as much to people think every small town is the same. And they are absolutely not. They have their own personalities and they're great too, but it was an amalgamation of, of those three. The um, economy of Locksburg has suffered from, you know, the way a mm -hmm. lot of small towns, we hear about this a lot. Is this a common, are there a lot of small towns that have really suffered? Yes, there have. Look, the coal and, and steel were huge, as we all know, in, in, especially in Pennsylvania. And, I'm very happy about a lot of those towns because a lot of them are doing some great repurposing. They're turning into uh, Airbnbs and there's um, a lot of art. Oh, even I know Pittsburgh's not a small town, but Pittsburgh is doing some great things too. They've re repurposed a lot of what's happening in the town. There's a couple of them in central, central, central Pennsylvania who are doing anything from film festivals to art galleries, and they are really neat. 
There's some who haven't gotten the drift. There's some that people don't want to live to. You can buy a beautiful house and, and acres and acres of land for practically nothing, which raises the question, what would you do for a living there? Or, or what would you do there? Um, so it's it, some towns can go either way. You, you, you don't know what's going to happen. And then, and not to get, this doesn't, even though there's an addict featured, an addict featured in the book, I didn't go too much into some of the other things that are really ripping about the small towns, opioids, of course, and, and some of the many other drugs that are really feeding and growing people's despair in that area. And that's a tough thing to, uh, to handle too. So, you know, hopefully knock wood, most of these towns will make out okay in the future. It's, it's interesting, you know, to, convert a town from an industrial or coal mining town to an artistic enclave um it's it's like in some ways there's a part of me as the as the um you know midwesterner that i've become that it's like well that's not real work <laughs> you know? Yeah, you know? oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And there's this little town uh, I love, uh, which is uh, uh, south of Pittsburgh called Ohio. What a funny name. Ohio Pile, Pennsylvania. <laughs> and they've done some great repurposing. What do they do? They have ripped up the train tracks, which used to go into the steel mills, which are no longer in use. And they've made, uh, I think they call it um, uh, uh, rails to trails. And so you can go rent a bike and go along the, I think it's called the Yepahonic River. And, uh, and, and there you've got a river. So what do you do with the river? You do whitewater rafting too. You are right though. You're so right. Some people, <laughs> oh, that's not real work. If I don't, hey, look, I grew up in Philadelphia and my brother still firmly in some ways believe that if you don't sweat during your work, you're not doing work. And, um, yeah. and you know, he, he unloads trucks and he believes that is real work and he believes being a journalist at the New York Times is still <laughs> is still a hobby that that one day I could I could get rid of. Well, I'm sorry to tell you, Gus, I'm not getting rid of this hobby. So yes, a lot of these a lot of these small towns have are trying to repurpose, and they've got a lot of problems, but they also have a lot of opportunities. I I don't want to be a cheerleader, but I don't want to be a Debbie Downer either. It could go either way, and some of them are going. Are, going a good way too. this Ohio pile is a great example. Yeah. It's interesting because, you know, I think, well, but they're not making anything, you know, we need to, America was made great because we made things and, mm-hmm. but we made things that are sitting in, I gotta say, I just came back from LA. I'm in Austin right now. And you know what I see everywhere is storage facilities. Yes. We made all this stuff that people have to rent space to store and they don't use and don't need and do we need to keep making so much stuff and we keep pushing people to buy more and more so maybe they could rent another storage <laughs> container to put something in at least there, the so. things that my company makes are very small i don't think too many <laughs> of them go into the storage containers <laughs> but but um yeah so if you are providing experiences so you know there's sort of a in a way, tendency to look down on on tourism as the as the mainstay of an economy, but um, because you know what's the lasting value of that? But for all of us, what lasts longer than our experience, our memories? Wow, I could not have said it better. Um, psychology study after psychology study says that experiences, <clears throat> like reading a book. Um, <laughs> experiences last longer in our minds and give us so much more pleasure 
than objects. It's not a Pollyanna thing to say. It really has been proven. And it's been proven not only in studies, I think it's been proven, at least for me in my life, too. I taught even bad times. Gosh, I talk about sometimes <laughs> bad times. Have, have, you know, once when my car, speaking of small towns, my father and I were fishing once uh, years and years ago, and our car broke down in Mitchell State Forest in Pennsylvania. And we had to stay uh, at a little hotel and it was the worst experience at the time, but I look back on it with such affection. We had <laughs> such a great time and it was an experience and it lasted longer, uh, than that car that broke down. So things really don't, um, don't really last, but experiences really stick in our mind for quite a long time. Well, I got to tell a story of a car breakdown that happened for me. Uh, I was, I was, uh, 22 and I had mm-hmm. two young children. And I was going on a trip with my mom and dad and my, like, baby and toddler. And going across the Mississippi River, something came up on the bridge. My There was something in the road, and it came up and pierced the gas tank. Oh. My dad was driving the car. Now, my dad was Mr. Handy, everything. He was an engineer, and he could mm-hmm. fix anything. We pulled over to an empty way station on the other side of the river when he realized something was wrong. And, and I helped my father remove the gas tank. He had a whole set of tools in the trunk. This was this big old car. This was this big old car. It had used to belong to the phone company and it was like this great big trunk. He had a full set of tools. He called, he hitchhiked to a (laughs) farm or he, he hiked over the field to a farmhouse. This was way before cell phones. Mm Mm-hmm called a junkyard, found a junkyard that had this gas tank or had a car like this. Sure. Um, and a policeman gave him a ride there to bring the gas tank back. And he and I took the gas tank off the car, replaced it, and we continued on our trip. Brilliant story. <laughs> Absolutely love it. And uh, and that's much the same that happened to my father and I. We, the, the, the car uh, broke down. We It was the transmission. And we went into town and someone had a transmission or the mechanic did it for us. But, um, but the same <laughs> thing happened and that story. And at the time we thought it was the worst thing that ever happened. Oh, to yeah, us. Yeah. And uh, my father passed away a couple of years ago, but me- even 10, 15 years after it happened, we would talk about it at family gatherings. Remember that time we broke down in the forest and, uh, and even tough stories can sometimes over time be great. Well, this happened over 40 years ago. And my father died a month later. Oh. So this is like my, one of my last memories of my dad. Mm-hmm. So that makes it even more special. So like you said, those it was an experience that has lasted a lifetime for me. Do you remember what, what the car was? What kind of car was it? It was this big white, oh, those big boxy, I think it was a Ford, um, mm-hmm. I, I, I could find it. If you, if you showed me pictures, I'd recognize it, <laughs> but I don't curious. remember the name of it. Uh-huh. Now. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's a great story. I absolutely yeah. love it. And my mom continued driving that car for a while, but the gas gauge never worked. <laughs> <laughs> Not after the gas tank went out. Yep. Oh, that's great. I love it. Yeah. So Ken, let's talk a little bit about your, your writing process. Uh, yeah. you, you said this, this novel pretty much wrote itself, but, Somebody had to to actually sit down and uh, type mm-hmm. it out, and uh, so was this something like that? Do you have 
I'm assuming you were still working your yep. day job. So yep. when do you find the time and, and how do you do it? Let me tell you, I didn't write this book. I edited it. I really believe that to be true. In the past, I've written several novels that went nowhere that, that couldn't, uh, agents would look at them and they, and they wouldn't represent them. And this one, I decided to take a different tack. I said, don't worry about every, sometimes I would stop after two or three sentences and admire my beautiful work and, <laughs> um, you know, and stall. And I said to myself, no, write, just keep writing, go back to it later and edit it. And there were sometimes I would write three or four pages when I finally edited it. I would bring it back to, you know, a page or even a paragraph. So I sort of listened to the characters and followed them along and just kept writing. In the past, I was so concerned about every single word. And, uh, and this time I wasn't. I said, I'm a, that's what I do for a living. I edit. You're going to edit this manuscript rather than write it. And that's, um, I, ho I hope it's a little bit fast moving because of that, because it feels like that to me. In, yeah. in the past, I would I would stop and fawn over my putting together two great words, and I was like, "Oh, look how beautiful <laughs> that is!" I didn't do that this time. I uh, I focused primarily on storytelling and on editing. So that's the that's the big change I made this time around. And was it much easier then to find an agent? So I really have to go back and. Uh, see how many novels I've written in the past. I, 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 <laughs> I, I got out of college. I wrote a novel. I thought it was going to be the next Hemingway. Of course, it never went anywhere. And I said, I'm never writing another novel. And I put it aside. And uh, like three or four years later, tried again, blah, 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 blah. I found an a, I, I wrote the novel in seven months. I found an agent within a month. And I sold the novel within three weeks. So after all these years of so dec years, decades, after decades of trying to get something done, it was a whirlwind. And like I said, wrote it in seven months, uh, took an, a month to find an agent. And I had several offers from several agents. And uh, my uh, agent said, um, I bet you I could sell this within three, three weeks. And boy, was he right. Wow. Yeah. So... You've already explained to us what the what made the difference, but what I'm curious about is what kept you writing through all those ones that you that went nowhere? Foolishness, foolishness. <laughs> I would write. I don't know. You know like, I, I I I think if you write only for yourself, you are being foolish. I think if you write only for a reader, you're sort of selling out. I think you've got to find that middle ground. And if I couldn't find readers, if I couldn't find an agent, I couldn't publish it. I tried to find some pleasure for myself to mm -hmm. like, Hey, I, I did like doing it. Writing is, is, a, is, is a pleasure, even though it is sometimes a pain, there's pain in that. pleasure. <laughs> so I, I, I kept doing it. I also, as we talked about, I've written for the theater. So I would have some success with my plays. And then I, then I would say to myself, now I can write that novel. Now it'll work. And then, of course, it never would. And I, uh, you know, three or four years later, I'm a glutton for punishment. I would go back to it and say, write another, another one. This time it'll get published. And it never did. And you are going to think I'm saying this just for the sake of saying it. But I, I swear I'm not. This was it. This is the last one. I said, if I don't publish this one, I'm giving up. <laughs> I, am, I am absolutely giving up. I can't keep doing this. And it happened. 
it absolutely happened and it, and it all worked out. What kept me writing to answer the question a little bit more succinctly, I did like it. And there's always hope. Hope dies hard. <laughs> Why do you think your plays were more successful? Because you are shown to be the fool you are and the bad writer you are instantly in the theater. You write something and you think it's brilliant. Then you put it on stage with an actor and it sinks. And, you, oh, it's, it is uh, the most humbling experience you will ever have. I have written pages of dialogue that I thought would come alive and I would be deemed the next Shakespeare, if not Shakespeare, then Arthur Miller. And <laughs> you, you get them up there and you sense the audience around you not being with you and you see the tepid reactions and it doesn't work. And I think that made me an I, I, I don't want to self-praise. Self-praise is not a good recommendation. But I think it taught me something early on having such failures in theater that I learned to be a better theater writer quick. I never learned that in in, um, in writing a novel. You get people are, sometimes people are too nice. Sometimes agents are, this is a good novel, but it's not for me. And um, And I think they were just kindly saying this drags. Or this isn't as good as it should be. Did you ever participate in a writing group or a writing workshop? No, no, I haven't. I, I right now when I got a college at Community College of Philadelphia, I remember um, going to one for for a couple of weeks. But um, but no, I never have. Um, my job does take a lot of my time. Yeah. And uh, there are times when you spend the whole day writing and editing, you don't want to do it on yourself. The, one, yeah. the only thing that worked out really well for me is that after I left Manhattan and moved to New Jersey, I had a, I had a significant commute. My commute probably takes 45 minutes, uh, sometimes even longer. So I would bring my laptop and, and, and work. I really didn't have time for a, uh, for a writing group, although right. I know they've been helpful to many people. Well, I wonder if that would give some of the similar feedback or more immediate yeah. feedback like the theater did. You are you. absolutely right. I, I didn't even think that, but of course it would. <laughs> And, uh, and, you're, and you're right, maybe that would have been been helpful to me. I have a friend, um, Jen Kitsis, who is a novelist herself, and she said that worked for her very well. She would write it, and she thought, this is brilliant. And then you see the people sort of examining their fingernails and looking off at the ceiling, and you realize maybe this work isn't as good as I thought it was. Yeah, which yeah. is also can be discouraging oh, if, if when you're in the middle awesome. of it, you know, and and – Maybe it makes people give up. It, 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 it's your child, and you don't want to yeah. hear anybody insult your child. Then you play the other side of it. You too. You, you the oh, they're wrong. Yes. They're wrong. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's, it's <laughs> them. It's not me. I'm brilliant. And uh, and how many times have we heard people reject? You know, we've heard agents and publishers reject masterpieces. And you hold out and you think, I'm telling you, this is the masterpiece, but the world is wrong. And you have to find, that's a tough decision to make. Are you wrong or, or are they wrong? The last um, author that I interviewed had his book rejected 42 times. Mm -hmm. And it um, is doing extremely well. It's uh, How to Be Remembered. How to Be Remembered. Yeah, yeah. and I think he even said it been optioned already for a movie it's a it's a great book and so it's just amazing to me and uh, i told the story one of the first books that we interviewed we've been doing the show since 2006 and in the early years we interviewed one of the chicken soup for the soul authors and those books mm -hmm. were rejected like a hundred times 
before they got mm-hmm. published. So, so sometimes it does happen that that a book, absolutely, yeah. But sometimes I mean, they're right. <laughs> but, oh, often they're right. Some there's a great phrase: some artists starve for a reason, and um, and some do. And and then conversely, look, I love Richard Yates. And he couldn't sell more than 10,000 novels in his lifetime. Oh, wow. And he was almost every book, I believe. Matter of fact, I know his masterpiece, Revolutionary Road, was out of print. And only um, he had a big renaissance about 15 years ago with the film. And, um, and but now he's really come, passed away. But, but his books have, have really come back. But for years, if you would have looked at his sales and you would have looked at him because he became alcoholic, you would pointed him and say, there is a failure of a writer when he was anything but. He's tough to take sometimes, but I think he's brilliant. I think he's one of, to not make too bold a statement, I think he's one of the best authors that this country has produced. And at at one time, he was considered a major, major failure. And this goes back to to so many authors. Uh, This goes back to Herman Melville, obviously, and and many others who who were considered failures. But in long term, they weren't. That is a very good point. So mm-hmm. what advice would you give to somebody who's setting out to become a novelist? Get a day job. Um, <laughs> yeah. in, in some ways, I, 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 was, I don't mean to be a smart aleck. Um, uh, who was I thinking of? David Mamet, who, you know, when someone asked him, why did he write the Pulitzer Prize winning Glen Gary, Glenn Ross? He says, I worked in a real estate office and hated it. And he hated the job, and it eventually led him to win the Pulitzer Prize. <laughs> um, I think if you could look around at almost any job and, uh, and, and find your characters right there. Most of your characters, I think, will be right there in front of you, um, expressed a little bit differently or exaggerated slightly. But, oh, what, do I, what would I um, – advice would I give? Um, the same advice I give to playwrights, too. Remember your audience. Oh, Absolutely. Yeah. You, you can't just write for yourself. And for years I did. And again, I know this is a tough novel at times too, but I think readers can understand what's happening. And, uh, and I've written for them just as much as I've written for myself. Um, just, I wanted to ask you, what are the names of some of your plays? Um, my, the only play I have published uh, is Interchange. That's the only other thing I have. I'm, I've now published my novel, but Interchange uh, ran at the Workshop Theater Company in Manhattan about uh, eight years ago, and that's published by Broadway Play Publishing. Um, the one in Avignon, France right now um, is uh, Believers, and that has a strong religious uh, undertone as well. And uh, Never Missed a Day, which was my first play that was set at a retirement party. Because uh, <laughs> I, I, I had gone to a, a, a a retirement party, which is a place that is absolutely the place you tell stories. You know, people look back on their lives too. So my, my big three were never missed a day interchange and um, uh, believers. And right now in Guadalajara, Mexico is a play that I hope to bring to New York sometime soon. If I could find a theater um, and it's called the patron saints. And there is, that's just the title. It's not about religion <laughs> at all, but uh, I love theater. And I'm incredibly, incredibly saddened by theater these days uh, because of what COVID has done. Mm-hmm. And audiences are, are very slow to come back. 
and my theater company has sold its theater. Uh, I, I should say my a, a theater group that I'm a member of. I don't. Uh, we're we're a collective, but um, but there are money woes. Theater is such a beautiful art form, and it's it's sad to see uh, what has happened to it with COVID wow. and grants and money. And I do believe it'll be fine in the long run. We know that Shakespeare's theaters were closed down during the plagues. And, um, and people say technology will kill it, and I absolutely do not believe it. I think it will always be there, but it is going through a very tough time right now. Well, pre-COVID, I would come to New York um, for three or four years to see two or three plays, usually three okay. plays every summer, and um, like back-to-back. And I may return this fall. What should mm-hmm. I see? What should I see? Um, I haven't, I, the only thing I've seen in the past, well, since COVID, I've only seen uh, uh, two or three plays. I did, oh, we, we keep going back to religion. I shouldn't, <laughs> we shouldn't have asked, we shouldn't have asked. Because like, the last thing I've seen was the Book of Mormon. I did see was, that, yeah. Which was, was vulgar and funny at the <laughs> yeah. same time. You, yeah. you, you think they shouldn't be uh, saying that, and they're saying it. And I also did see Hamilton, which yep. for the first 10, you, have you seen it? Yep, in New York. Uh, I want to hear your review real quick, but I'll tell you my review for 10, the first 10 minutes, I thought, wow, what an overplay praised musical. I don't know what's going. And it exploded for me. I thought it was brilliant after yeah. that, but it, it shows you what, what uh, don't be a fool about its first impressions. Maybe it was just me. I couldn't get into it in the first 10 minutes. Mm. Then I thought it came alive and um, still I'm humming the songs. What did you think of it? Oh, well, I loved it. And I saw it Good. again in Des Moines, but um, on the traveling show. But uh, the only thing is those theater seats are so small. No leg room. Yes, they are. <laughs> that was the only the only drawback. Other than that, it was, I just think, I think it's brilliant. Yeah. I absolutely agree. I'm six foot three, what, somewhere in the neighborhood of 240 <laughs> pounds. And sometimes my knees feel like they're going to hit my chin. Yeah, but, um, exactly. But yeah, exactly. I, I, would, I hope no one has the same experience I had, or if they do, it came out in the end. I thought <laughs> the first 10 minutes, I'm like, I'm not sure what's going on here. And it was, it was like an explosion. I thought yeah. that was uh, just a tremendous, yeah. I saw it right before COVID. <laughs> what is your favorite play? You know, it's probably Hamilton. Okay. Yeah, Absolutely. it probably is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Although I saw, um, I saw Adam Driver and, um, the woman from The Diplomat do Carrie, 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 yeah, Carrie Russell, is that yeah. her name? do Burn This. That was pretty amazing, too. The Lanford Wilson play, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're out of time, Ken, and I want to thank you for being with us today. I am so happy to be here. Thank <laughs> you, Lars. was so happy. Thank you very, very much. We always end with the quote, and I found a couple of, um, I, I actually have two quotes because the first one is from Richard Russo author Richard Russo, people in mm-hmm. small towns, much more than in cities, share a destiny. Oh, and I think it. that really fits your book. Thank you. And then because you mentioned small King, Stephen King, he, he said, in small towns, people scent the wind with noses of uncommon keenness. <laughs> oh, I love it. God, that's totally Stephen King. Yeah, uh, and we were just talking about his fictional town of Derry, yep. Maine, too. Yep, yep. A lot of dark things happen as well. <laughs> Those are great quotes. I'm writing them down as we speak. That's terrific. I love them. Well, thank you, Ken. And thank you. you. And see you all next week on Writer's Voices. Thank you.